Hello and welcome to episode two of Beyond and Above. I'm your host, Daniel McKenzie, and this is a podcast about self-development, anthroposophy. Uh, You can Google that, by the way, or go back to episode one and check out the rather lengthier intro. Uh, Non-religious spirituality, stuff like that. Anyway, I'm thrilled to say that my guest today is Dr. James Dyson, a co-founder of one of the few English-speaking anthroposophical medical clinics, Park Atwood, in the UK. He has practiced as a doctor in Waldorf schools and in centers for social therapy. His areas of special interest are developmental psychology and adult mental health, and he's a regular contributor to anthroposophic therapeutic trainings in the UK, USA, and Australia. Dr. Dyson has also added psychosynthesis to his training, and he's a prolific lecturer of Rudolf Steiner's body of work in the healing fields. He also happens to be a very kind, personable, and wise man whose delightful accent I find a great joy to listen to despite the somewhat crummy audio that resulted from our having to communicate through internet meeting technology. Incidentally, Dr. Dyson spoke to me from the beautiful English countryside near the town of Stourbridge. So, James. Good afternoon, Dan. Yes, thank you for joining me. I've known you for quite some time. I have had the pleasure of attending many of your presentations, and yet there's a lot I don't know about your background. And so maybe a good starting point would be for you to describe what you do today and how your path in working with anthroposophy led you to this place. In a way, it's a boring story because I was born into a family for whom study of anthroposophy was just part of the bread and butter of life. I don't know if that means that I took it in with my mother's milk, but I may very well have done. So I never had to look for it. And I became very actively interested in my early to mid-adolescence and started reading books already the age of 14, 15. And I had some very good older mentors who were very happy to talk with me. And so by the time I was 16, I decided that I would have to equip myself in life to do something that might be relevant for anthroposophy, and medicine presented itself. It was actually following a lecture that I heard from an anthroposophical doctor, I decided that I needed to turn my attention to what's the atom, what's the gene, and are human beings the product of animal evolution in the more traditionally Darwinistic way? Because I somehow thought those three themes belong to the present time, and unless I I'm inside them scientifically, I can't expect to be a modern citizen. And it seems as though anthroposophy has got somewhat different angles on these things. So I thought, okay, so I finished my humanities at school and managed to get a scholarship to a a pre-medical science course in London University, and that linked into a medical degree in Royal Free Hospital. That's very helpful to me and to anyone who might be listening to this, I think. I'm almost envious of the fact that you were born into an anthroposophical family, although given my own family, I might have rebelled against it had that been my case. So everyone has their own uh, karmic path, I guess. Did I rebel? In a way, I did. I rebelled against some of the ways in which anthroposophy had been represented to me in my adolescence. I made my own relationship to anthroposophy very independently after I left home and when I was in London. And it involved quite a major deconstruction 
of how I saw anthroposophy and for that matter how I saw myself in relation to anthroposophy. I suppose I sailed into it very much intellectually and on the back of an intellectual appreciation. What happened was that I confronted my intellectual understanding and began to see that the intellect could never hold the reality. And when I realized that the intellect could never hold the reality, I realized that the so-called reality that I'd previously thought myself to be living in was something more like a shine or an illusion. The carpet was pulled away from under my feet. And in the light of that, I looked back and said, why did nobody ever tell me this? And that was how my rebellion happened. But I came through it. Um, it wasn't a breakdown situation. I didn't miss a day's study or anything. But there was, it was a sense life will never be quite the same again now. So I, I want to probe a little bit more into this uh, turning point. I don't know if it's accurate to describe it as an epiphany or was this kind of a, an inner meditative experience or was it sort of like an aha moment you had while reading or taking a walk in the woods? How did this moment come about? It was a shock. It was closer on being a trauma than it was being on a peak experience, put it like that. I said it was like the carpet pulled under my feet or another way of putting it, it was as though I hit the buffers and I was stopped in my tracks. It was as though I looked back into myself and saw the extent to which my own sense of identity was bound up with something that I now saw had got an illusory element to it. And so it was a, a little bit like, oh my goodness, I have to say goodbye to myself. I have to say goodbye to something in me. And I would say for several weeks, I remember walking along and just thinking, I'll never feel comfortable in myself again. But of course, what happened was that over the course of the next year or two, I developed a new way of finding that comfort. Comfort isn't the right word. Finding that new stability, that's better put. But it was, it was an experience that's never left me. It's really compelling. And it's, in a way, it's not an unfamiliar tale. If you think about what we've heard about way back to people like Martin Luther, who yes. apparently had some... <laughs> epiphany experience one day and then turned from a drinking, whoring, indulgent guy into who he became, or even Eckhart Tolle, who's a popular contemporary spiritual philosopher now talks about having this experience, although sadly for him, it apparently involved two years of sitting on a bench somewhere, whereas it seems like you were able to maintain your center and pursue your studies. So it is kind of an initiation tale to have this witnessing self be born. I think that's a very good way of putting it down. That's extremely good. And it did have a certain consequence in the way I approached life and other people. It led to a bit of a rejection of what I'd had before, how anthroposophy had been brought to me before. It enabled me, if you like, to cut my psychological umbilical cord with my family, which is, I think, always an important thing to do. And it didn't terminate a relationship. It just took it into a new stage. And I did also take a far more critical attitude from there on in towards other people. And I think that critical attitude towards other people, I brought antipathy towards other people. I started to say, well, how is it with all these people that I've had to do with up until now? Have they realized that this intellectual approach that they bring insofar as they do is only half of the truth? 
And sometimes I came to the conclusion that perhaps they hadn't woken up to that. And then I had to deal with my own sense of arrogance and even in a very mild way, one would have to call it narcissism. There was, if you like, an illegitimate compensation that I projected out some of my own pain onto others for a while. And as I started recognizing I was doing that over a period of six months, six, 12 months, I sort of realized that this could go wrong if I didn't pick myself up on it. I'd wager that's also not uncommon among people who have experienced such a radical shift in perception. So transition us, if you will, from that early epiphany into what later became your calling or your mission. The journey between the more historical and the more contemporary. I think the bridge for me could be even Lord of the Rings. The three things that impacted on me are, I think, fairly simple, but fairly profound. The one is that the future of the world doesn't live with the wise and experienced magicians or elves, but it lives with the, the hobbits. So in a way, that very fact gave me a sense of empowerment because I had the feeling, okay, that means it's a grassroots movement into the future. The next thing was that the power of the individual had to give way to the power of the group in the formation of the fellowship. And then, of course, the fellowship went through its own tragedy. But at the same time, although it was broken on earth, it was probably not broken on a higher level. And that equipped me to carry my experiences in life as I went forward because I had lots of disillusionments with fellowships that I thought I was part of and later realized wasn't. And it enabled me to manage the tide of that better than I otherwise would. You can't be too over-identified with the earthly fulfillment of the fellowship, however important it is. It doesn't mean that it's the end. And I think that says an awful lot about human collaboration and how we have to go forward. And of course, the other element was bound up with that. And that was that the one thing to beware of at all costs is the power invested in any one entity, be that entity an individual or a person. Power corrupts. Power corrupted Boromir in Lord of the Rings. Um, Gandalf simply wouldn't take the power on because he knew that it was, he wouldn't be able to handle it. Even Frodo, at the end of the day, couldn't handle the power. And yet the whole saga of Lord of the Rings is built on how to destroy the very thing that would ensure that there would be one power, one ring to rule them all. And I must say that under contemporary life circumstances, that theme doesn't seem exactly any less relevant. That, that's a sort of bridge, you know. I sort of use it as a yardstick. I, I ask myself... Is this process or is this individual interested in power, however worthy it might seem, or is it power over or is it collaboration? And a friend pointed out to me not very long ago, you know, Stein has written a book called How to Achieve Knowledge of the Higher Worlds or How to Know Higher Worlds. What's the first sentence of that book? It says, There slumber in every human being forces by means of which he or she can achieve an insight into higher knowledge or knowledge of the higher world, something like that. So the person that I was talking to at the time said, okay, well done, you know the first sentence, what's the last sentence? And I thought, oh dear, and I, I realized I hadn't a clue what the last sentence of the book was. And she said, well, look it up. So I, I kind of did. And what it says to the effect is the, the spiritual teacher on the white path will 
refrain from passing any kind of advice onto any other human being to the extent that that other person is not committed to working in collaboration with others. And that seemed to me to be the most powerful statement. And it brought back the whole of the Lord of the Rings saga to me. So Lord of the Rings has been very important in my life. One of the things that has drawn me to the anthroposophical stream and kept me in it, even as there are seemingly so many options in the contemporary world of non-religious spirituality. And there's, I think, a lot of worthy content. But in a genre which is most broadly described as self-development, there's a sense within anthroposophy that self-development is actually a tool for communal service, for service of the greater good. The concept isn't, I'm going to develop myself so that I can become more powerful or successful or closer to God. You know, I can elevate myself in some way, even if it's in a spiritual sense. And and many other streams seem to carry this feeling of, I need to elevate or distinguish myself in some way. Anthroposophical self-development seems ultimately connected to social responsibility. Those things are literally interwoven in the anthroposophical understanding. So what do you feel in the current climate where it doesn't take a spiritual sage to recognize that power is being wielded in a selfish and even reckless way? How do we meet these external circumstances? And how does your work play into that? How do you feel called to service? Is there a theme, a thread or something else? Well, I suppose if I start with what I'm not, I've never been particularly an activist. I've certainly not been a political activist. That doesn't mean I haven't had political interests, and it doesn't mean I've been close to the political life. And I certainly have always recognized that the human being is primarily, a was it Aristotle who said, a social animal? So in that sense, we're all political but I have never been party political or narrowly political. We're speaking during a period of lockdown, and we must acknowledge that elephant in the room. And I have lots of concerns about the present situation. But my work is now largely in psychology. And why is it in psychology? It's not out of any academic consideration. Most certainly not. It's that psychology seems to me to have replaced in our cultural milieu, what was in Steiner's day, philosophy. I mean, people who were culturally awake in the last part of the 19th century and even on into the 20th were philosophers. I mean, that was also, that was not only the time when the German idealistic philosophers were still around, but it was also in England, the period of time of Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell and many others, Melo-Ponty, and cognitive science and philosophy were very important within the cultural life. Now that waned more or less from the early 20th century onwards, and what then emerged was psychology, particularly through the work of Freud and through psychoanalysis, and then it exploded. And we've got the whole 20th century history of psychology and psychotherapy, or perhaps better said, psychotherapeutic psychology in a way, because the, it was psychotherapy that really drove this rather than academic psychology. 
And this, of course, opened up the whole realm of what is human relationship. It also opened up the whole realm of what is the unconscious. It also opened up the whole realm of sexuality. And these became really, the as the 20th century progressed, and particularly as, as we emerged in the 60s, as the new generation in the, in the 20th century, the post-war generation, these were the key questions, even within the, the hippie movement and the movement that was saying a very strong no to society as it had then become in the 60s. There was a very strong sense of the personal relationship being critical. I know in one of the Beatles songs, I think it was Eleanor Rigby, she left her hands in a jar by the door. And that always went straight into me. What that meant to me was there was a certain lack of authenticity between her presentation outwardly and what was going on inside. And I think authenticity became, for me, the, the crucial factor. Because how can you have collaboration without authenticity? Now, authenticity is a nice word, and it sounds like something that we would all like to sign up to. But for a human being to be authentic means that they're in touch with, their, with something that one might call the self with a capital S. It means that th there is a, an easy relationship between the persona and what lives in us as core, core experience of who we are. And of course, this core experience of who we are can only really be achieved gradually. It's part of self-development. It's also ultimately, I think, a matter of initiation. We all have a sense of this self but to be able to transcend the outer garb of the self and to come into touch on a higher level with who you really are isn't that simple. And maybe we can only ultimately know who we are through other people and through our will. I think that it is through what we do and how we respond to others that we come to know who we are rather than coming to some inner picture of, you know, a sort of a, a cognitive behavior therapy type idea of this is the person I want to become. So I, I simply build a self-image on the basis of positive reinforcement. And that's who I am because that's who I want to be. Well, that might help a person gain a few skills in life and it might be relevant for building up a few sub-personalities. It's not going to tell you anything about your true being in the long run. So authenticity is critical, and without authenticity, communication becomes very easily banter, or simply speaking through a role, being a mouthpiece for your position rather than speaking out of yourself. So without authenticity, there can't be community. Without community, there can't be collaboration. Without collaboration, there can't be world service. So there is a kind of natural sequence there. And so you asked, what's the focus of my work? Well, I guess in my late 50s, after my clinical work became less central for me, I really felt that I wanted to give the next phase of my life to the question of how do we find a personal authenticity beyond the work that can happen in, in the therapy room, in a one-to-one -one consultation?
So although in my teaching I do bring a lot of content and I am a mind-oriented person, I can't get away from that. I've grown more gradually into being a relationship-oriented person in my teaching. So I feel that my work as a lecturer is more on the decrease and my work as a facilitator is more on the increase. But the two go together because knowledge without experience is no worse or better than experience without knowledge. And I think here I go along completely with Ken Wilber. I heard an interview recently from Ken Wilber in which he was making that point from many different angles. Experience is not the answer, but neither is knowledge. It's the interweaving of the two. So if we're talking about being authentic, then we're talking about the transition from the human psyche to the human spirit. And Asajoli in Psychosynthesis, and this completely dovetails or matches with anthroposophy, spoke about two different aspects of psychosynthesis. He called the one the personal psychosynthesis and the other the transpersonal. The transpersonal journey is the journey that takes you across the so-called threshold into non-sensory reality, the world of being that lies behind the sense-perceptible world. And Sajoli's particular way into that was more through, I think, the theosophical tradition, which is very close to the anthroposophical tradition, actually. And on the other hand, he emphasized the personal psychosynthesis, in which he much more acknowledged the work of the traditional psychoanalysts, in which he said you have to put your own house in order first. You have to regenerate your personality for every step that you take in stepping beyond your personality into the spirit in order that you don't create a basic split in yourself. And Steiner said the same thing, but he said three steps in moral development for every one step in spiritual. And I think by moral, he really meant take a good look at yourself and put your own house in order. So authenticity has to do with bringing those two tending to diverge aspects. The natural tendency is that these diverge. We have to bring them together by a conscious act of will. That's the thrust of where I feel my motivation is. So what you said about experience and knowledge and this sort of yin-yang interrelationship between them, we have this image of the spiritual seeker crafting in their own work in solitude a relationship with this world of pure consciousness in a way by dismantling the various sheaths that come from their experience in the world of sense perception. And yet at the same time, it seems to me that here we are on this planet, in these bodies, in relationship with each other. So much of the human experience and health and also growth and healing happens in the relational process and not within the self. So maybe the way there's this experience and knowledge are interwoven is a, is a parallel picture to the image of the work one does within oneself in meditative quiet and how one brings that into one's direct personal relationships and familiar relationships and working relationships and with the world in general. But more particularly to your work as a facilitator, you mentioned initiation. So I always connect initiation to the picture of the work in meditative solitude is there a kind of initiation that can happen relationally in a group setting or in relation to other people? How would you describe that kind of initiation? Or did you mean by initiation something that happens 
in solitude within the individual? Um, I think you've come to the very core of what I feel is most important right now. So I've got to be careful how I answer. I'm going to start off by mentioning someone you probably know or know of, Orland Bishop. Yes, indeed. I've seen him speak. I recently read his book, The Seventh Shrine, and in that book he uses the word initiation very often. Now, Orland, whom I have met, is someone who's also been very involved in initiation from African sources. He was a pupil of Credo Mutwa, whose book I also read in my adolescence, interestingly enough. So there is a certain affinity, I, I guess, I must have with Orland. Now, the way that he uses this word initiation is absolutely to do with social awakening, with interpersonal awakening, and with awakening in one's relationship to the place and environment that one is as a being, and an awakening to synchronicity in time, realizing that events that come to meet one in time are not just arbitrary, but belong at a very deep level to the people you're with, the place you're in, and if you can presence them, and if you can tune into them, then you're already beginning to develop a higher organ of perception, of discernment. I think that's at least one shot at how I felt Orland was using that word, and it resonated with me. I would say that's what I find most powerfully compelling and important for us all, because that is world service. That's where the inner path and social responsibility become inseparable from each other. Because your path of service is in and of itself an initiatory path. Service isn't something that you do to a world out there as though it's an it, because it needs you to serve it. That's utterly dualistic. You and the world actually have to transcend that dualism and find a new unity. And the finding of that new unity is, I think, a step into what Steiner called the etheric world, the world of the elements that surrounds us. And I think that's the world that nowadays humankind is very close to being able to enter. Now, the question that follows from that is, well, do you need to do work in solitude and I think the answer here is different people will have different needs. But most people will feel the need to accompany this work by what Arthur Zions has called contemplative inquiry. And that may become a little bit more than contemplative inquiry. It may go right into the realm of meditative work. And for me, that is also very important. In a way, I was working on that level meditatively long before the more social connotations of initiation, the more intersubjective or interpersonal ones really became so dominant with me. But the two oscillates and oscillate and they serve one another. I'm at the moment in this lockdown, apart from doing videos and Zooms and things, I'm putting more effort and more attention into my inner work in solitude. And I'm noticing that if I do that now, I can achieve something inwardly that is comparable to the description I made outwardly a minute ago. These things are difficult to put into words, but it all has to do with the overcoming of the split between subject and object. If you're living your life outwardly and you're overcoming this split, you become less interested in strategy 
and more interested in the process that you're in and where it's leading towards. Because to use Otto Sharma's words, you're in that space which is leading into the future as it emerges. You're in the space of the emergent, and the space of the emergent requires that you are in a space of not imposing your will on what is seeking to emerge. And this, of course, takes us right back to the original theme of power. If you're in the realm of emergent, you're in the realm of power with others. You can't be in this realm with other people if you are separate from it and have a sense of power over the etheric world or the spiritual world or the world of initiation, however we're calling it, is closed. The moment you have a sense that this is me here, that's the world there, and I have a mission in relation to that. That applies if you're wanting to proselytize a religion. It implies if you have some sort of strategy for world leadership or anything. It doesn't work. We can only enter a new world in terms of recognizing that there is something out there that is seeking to emerge through us. And then this dualism ends. Now, if we go into the inner world and say, how is that within a meditation? Well, it, it's a corollary of the same thing. The first step that you confront in inner meditation is the illusory nature of everything you're meeting in your ordinary sense-bound self, which is a little bit, I think, what I met when I was 19 at the beginning of my story. I saw that the person that I was was only an image of myself. So if you can then go through a process of entering a certain inner darkness and sustaining consciousness in darkness, then the experience will emerge, and this is well documented. The being that you thought you were, you leave behind, but the being that you're wanting to become comes towards you. But it doesn't come towards you as a being in the normally understood sense. It comes towards you as an experience of a new stream and source of warmth, light and life. And to the extent that that can be something that you are modest enough, because you have to be modest to stay in this space, you mustn't expect too much too soon. If you can be modest enough to receive that into yourself, you begin to feel as a reality in my soul and my body are being nourished from a world that is making its presence felt and that one day I may be able to step into. But it isn't actually a different world. It's the same world that I'm in all the time, except that I don't know it. So there is a kind of corollary of what I was trying to describe in terms of leading from the future as it emerges, as Otto Sharma has said. So I think the two processes are complementary. And I think that the emphasis of how much any one person will give to the one or the other will change over time and oscillate. But ultimately, the one will lead to the other and vice versa, I think. I feel that it was so richly loaded with wisdom that there's hardly anything I can add to it. But I can't wait to listen to this conversation and take it in again. Much of what you've said has been an affirmation for some of my own thoughts and experiences. And it's just such a pleasure to engage in this authentic dialogue. So thank you so much, James. I'm aware of the fact that you have a, another meeting coming up. Your questions were just so beautifully tailored and crafted that I didn't have to think about anything I said. I think it emerged between us. What a generous man. 
Thank you so much, James Dyson. Funny he should liken himself to a hobbit when speaking to him, I felt like Frodo talking to Gandalf. Thank you for listening to Beyond and Above. Big thanks to my brother, studio wizard Noah McKenzie, for helping me maximize the sound quality of these somewhat challenging audio files. Many thanks to Living Roots for allowing me to use their beautiful song, Beyond. Check them out at livingrootsmusic.com. I'd also like to recommend anyone who's interested in taking a deep dive into anthroposophy from a variety of angles. Uh, you should check out my friend Laura Scapatici's podcast, The Anthroposopher. Anyone who'd like to contact me directly, please find me on Facebook under the name Daniel McKenzie. And lastly, keep on the lookout for my forthcoming other podcast, Omega Male, in which I will be exploring the concept of a newer, more balanced archetype for men. As my English teacher Arthur Nathan used to say, go forth and spread beauty and light.